It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, one 866 I'm going to be speaking to Ron McDaniel, running things for the RNC in a matter of moments, and Andrew McCarthy at the bottom of the hour, talking about why these mandate challenges on the highest level of uh, highest courts all seem to be failing, as well as the problems that Governor Cuomo's having. So we have a lot of poll numbers to go over. We know the President of the United States arrived in Scotland uh, to give away our advantage in oil and gas and tell everybody the world's going to end before you know it. Uh, we know we had seven years. I think AOC gave us seven years or 12 years the world was going to end. I don't know what year we're in now, but I assume that she'll tell us because she'll stop running for re-election. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Well, I think that one of the dynamics that's unfolding right now is frustration among moderate Democrats on Capitol Hill. They don't feel like the White House has a strong enough legislative strategy. The fact that President Biden didn't call for a vote on infrastructure on Thursday, I spoke to some people who said if he'd done that, it's possible he would have gotten it. See, do you understand this? It's nuts. He didn't ask for a vote, yet delayed his flight, went to Capitol Hill for a second time to talk about his framework and didn't ask the raging liberals to vote for it. Meanwhile, the moderates just sat there and the liberals just sat there and they got nothing done, or I should say extremists. The spending palooza has been a loser for Joe Biden. The Democrats, as new polls show, Joe is losing popularity faster than the Detroit Lions are losing football games as the economy wobbles and energy prices soar as he lands in Scotland for the Green Summit while the world's leading polluters stay home. Number two. Yeah. Terry McCullough loses, you know, Katie barred the door. I mean, it's the deluge. Uh, because, you think look, it's that catastrophic? Yes, it's catastrophic, and it's, a, and, it's, and it's a panic button, because last time a Democrat lost, and you know this, last time a Democrat lost Virginia, what, we lost 60 seats in the House, right? right. Cornell Belcher talking about that on Meet the Press. Virginia governor's race never has one race said so much about party politics in the country than the Yunkin McAuliffe race. The last minute strategies that both have employed that seem to have blown up on the former governor and who is likely to prevail on Tuesday. We will discuss. Number one. Firefighters who are unwilling and who are taking a sick out like immature high school students compared to the firefighters who rushed in to save lives from the World Trade Center as it was crashing down. It just is such a disservice to the legacy. Yeah, Elise Jordan talking about mandate mania has turned into mandate insania. 24,000 New York City workers have either quit or been suspended or called in sick because of the mayor's idiotic vax or out policy. Who is picking up the trash, walking the beat, answering five alarm fires? Too few. This is the utter definition of self, a self-made crisis. And with me right now is RNC uh, chairwoman uh, Ronna McDaniel. Uh, Ronna, welcome back. Hmm. I don't hear her there. Yeah, that she's giving me the silent treatment, which oh, does happen. Great to be with you, Brian. Um, I'm here. Oh, there you go. Can you hear me? Yeah, Ron, a couple yeah. of things. Uh, first off, there's a few things happening right now, one of which is we have a country that's pro-vaccine, but seems to be, even though the polls indicate differently, against the mandate. Yunkin is against the mandate. McAuliffe is for the mandate. What's happening in New York City, as liberal as it gets, 
with firefighters, sanitation workers, soon-to-be correction officers, and cops. What is your take on how this is playing out around the country? Well, I think you hit it exactly correct. We're very pro-vaccine. I'm very pro-vaccine. But I don't believe in mandates. I don't think people who've been on the front line through this pandemic, police, firefighters, nurses, so many people should be fired and lose their agent, lose their job because they're exercising agency. Agency is a big part of our country, and they have the right to make that choice without losing their livelihood. And I think that's where it's really falling down. To have 23,000 potential firefighters and police off the job in New York as crime rates are spiking just seems insane to me. And it's because the Biden administration has not done a good job addressing the concerns people have about taking the vaccine. Instead, they've tried to force it down people's throats, and that's never going to work. Because some of the polls say the majority of country is is for the for the vaccine mandate. So we probably thought he was in good stead. But what it does is it's alienating a lot of people who don't want to get their their medical advice from a politician. The vax rates on the Florida fire department is 73 percent. Uh, 84% for the cops, sanitation workers, 79%. You're never going to get 100% anything in life, let alone a vaccine, which was found last year. I mean, to me, it just defies logic. I'm not sure where that's going to go, but it all played into this Virginia race. A lot of people saying that this means more than just who's the next governor of Virginia. What do you think, Rana? Well, I think the fact that it's even close says a lot. I mean, Virginia is a blue state. The fact that Republicans are competitive right now, not just at the gubernatorial level, but the House of Delegates where we need six to take majority in Virginia, speaks volumes. It shouldn't even be this close right now. Youngkin's run a great campaign. Obviously, if he wins, it will be a warning shot to Democrats into the midterms. But we're seeing this across the country in every race that we've had this year. Democrats are running well behind what Joe Biden did in November of 2020. So, uh, yeah, let's talk talk about this. For example, when it comes to critical race theory and education, you could sit there in a in a in a boardroom and say these are going to be the issues more than likely that are going to make bring us success in the midterms. But education is something that seemed to have come out organically when we started seeing when when parents started getting exposed to the curriculum of their kids. Can you describe from the political standpoint? How this? How when did you realize this would be a major issue? Well, I realized it was going to be a major issue because I'm one of those parents. I gave a speech about it in the summer. I said, Democrats have awoken a sleeping giant, moms, because we've been putting our kids on Zoom classes. I have a 16 year old son, and I had a daughter last year. They never went back to school five day a week in person for a year and a half. We saw the suicide rates going up. We've seen the mental health issues, and we've had the greatest exposure ever to our kids' education and what they're being taught. So parents are frontline workers in a lot of ways because we've been navigating this for our kids in many ways when unions have left them and politicians have left them and we've been left helpless. So I am not surprised at all that this is a major issue, especially in blue states like Michigan, like Virginia, where kids really were kept out of the classroom because of Democrat politicians. So the, the top issues, according to one survey, in September was the economy. 27% said, yeah, that's my number one issue. 16% said uh, the COVID virus, and 15% said education. Now, as we have November 1st, education 24, economy 23, COVID 10. That happened within this campaign. And then you see Terry McAuliffe, once again, get on the wrong side of this issue when he continues to say, I want to, uh, the teachers unions 
really hold the purse strings and should be defining the curriculum. He said, as much as I love my mom, she should not have been deciding what I learned. And then he said this, cut seven. We have a great school system in Virginia. Dorothy and I have raised our five children. Of course, parents are involved in it. What's the problem with that statement, Rana? Well, his kids went to private school. Uh, I have kids in public school. Let me just tell you, the private schools were up and running during the pandemic. The charter schools were up and running during the pandemic. I'm very much for school choice. Democrats aren't. But the kids who were in public school really were left behind during the pandemic. And, and they feel it. And the parents feel it. We know they lost years of education uh, on top of not being with their friends and the social anxieties that they've dealt with. And for McAuliffe to say that, is so disingenuous and disingenuous and then to double down on parents shouldn't have a say in their education without recognizing the sacrifice parents made especially women we had a she session because so many women had to leave their jobs to deal with child care issues during this pandemic and most of that was at the hands of democrat politicians who shut our schools down and didn't listen to the parents they care about the unions because that's where their money's coming from. It's their number one donor. So, and we know that McAuliffe, again, this is a political operative. He did your job for the Democrats for years. He's been tied yep. with the Clintons. He navigated so many Bill and Hillary Clinton campaigns, formally and informally. He seems to have lost all his instincts. Keep says, keep saying over and over again, CRT not being taught. When the curriculum, he signed off on a lot of this when he was there. Listen to this from a from a mom of a six year old who was, uh, was experiencing what her, was sharing with us what her daughter was experiencing in school. Listen to this, cut 10. My six-year-old somberly came to me and asked me if she was born evil because she was a white person, something she learned in a history lesson at school. I refuse to allow you to destroy our schools. They are not your schools. They are our schools. Well, excuse me, is that made up? Does that come? Does that kid walk in the house crying over something that never happened? So that he sees these personal testimonials and he doesn't pivot. No, he's doubling down, and it, it's heartbreaking to hear that, Mom, and to hear the father whose daughter was assaulted, and the school board covered it up in Loudoun County. I mean, these stories are so offensive, and parents are really waking up to what's happening in our schools that Democrats have had so much control over. There's a reason why they don't want school choice, because then they lose control. And Terry McAuliffe is doubling down on it. He's out of touch. But I'm going to say something, Brian. Republicans have to get out and vote. That's the only way we win. Democrats, they always stack a huge advantage with absentee ballots because Democrats vote by mail. And we need a huge turnout in Virginia tomorrow to make sure we win that race. It's not over yet. Go to vote.gop. These are the things that are going to determine not just the governor's race, but the House of Delegates and the balance of power in Virginia at the legislative level. So look at some of the numbers. They're overwhelmingly against Joe Biden. An NBC poll, 71 percent of the country say we're on the wrong track. Twenty two percent say we are. His approval is 42. Thirty seven percent. That's it. Say he has the ability to handle a crisis. 37% say he is competent and effective. 28% say he's knowledgeable and experienced. Knowledgeable and experienced. Are you kidding? So this if he, he, his experience is all negative. So far as a president, Rana, tell me what you think has happened to have the bottom fall out so quickly. Well, he ran in the basement. Nobody got a good look at him. The media chose not to vet him. 
And now everything he's doing is coming to light. And it's not just policy that we're talking about in D.C. that most people aren't paying attention to. We're living it. We're paying more for gas. We're paying for, for more for groceries. Thanksgiving's going to be cost prohibitive for families. We're seeing the help wanted signs. We know there's a labor force issue. We know there's a supply chain issue. On top of what we saw in Afghanistan, we know there's an open border. These aren't just things that are abstract to many Americans. We are seeing it firsthand in our everyday lives. Biden is a disaster, and the Democrat Party is failing on every single front. And I think there's a lot of buyer's remorse in America right now, which the best way to flip that around is in these midterms in 2022. Right now, if if Youngkin does prevail, what are your two top takeaways? Uh, well, I think historically this would be huge. The last time, uh, like you said, a Republican won in Virginia, Republicans picked up about 60 seats in the, in the House. I'm not going to set that benchmark. But two, it's a total repudiation of Biden. I mean, McAuliffe has brought in every surrogate, Obama, Biden, Harris. He has run with everybody. He has wrapped himself around Biden, and it will be a total repudiation of the Democrat Party and the Biden administration. I also think you're the pro. I also think that we should really rethink as a country, if I'm a candidate, who you want as a surrogate. Why have any? Youngkin said I'm new. Exactly. I'm going to work around. i got to address the people of Virginia. So you bring in the superstars on the Democratic side. Now you have Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Jill Biden, Stacey Abrams. You have uh, Kamala Harris cutting tapes uh, for every church, 300 black churches in Virginia. Now, if he loses, they all lose. You have to pick your spots in your business, it seems, Rana. It seems like Democrats just thought they were going to overwhelm people with star power. Dave Matthews is a good singer. Does that mean you want McAuliffe to be a governor? And Pharrell Williams, who came in and didn't even say vote for McAuliffe. That was one of their surrogates. I mean, I think Youngkin's done a great job focusing on Virginia, talking about his business experience, not trying to wrap his arms around anybody else, but making about him. And his candidacy, and it's really been a contrast to McAuliffe, who's having his parade of swamp creatures from D.C. run through the state with him, and that is just not what Virginians want right now. I don't think so. Well, we're about to find out. The state looks so red, but the population centers are all blue, so they have to come up. Yep. They have to find a way to close the gaps in places like Loudoun, uh, Loudoun County, where I think Donald Trump lost by 20. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, uh, Ronna McDaniel, you're finally getting a break. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. You Appreciate got it. it. Thanks for having hey, me. Hey, when we come back, your calls one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. I'll be able to take your calls. You have a lot on your mind. Also, pretty excited. Within twenty four hours, the president and Freedom Fighter will be available for all. Uh, I'm really looking forward to you reading it. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. 
While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Yeah. And Terry McCullough loses, you know, Katie barred the door. I mean, it's the deluge. Uh, because, you think look, it's that catastrophic? Yes, it's catastrophic, it and, it's a, and, it's, and it's a panic button, because last time a Democrat lost, and you know this, last time a Democrat lost Virginia, what, we lost 60 seats in the House, right? right. And, uh, and by the way, this is totally earned. Think about what they've done. They've been unable to pass. They got the $1.9 trillion, which even one of the, uh, President Obama's uh, aides, uh, economic aides, said this was their biggest mistake, their original sin, which Larry Summers said is added to inflation. And then they told us, OK, we're going to have a series of executive orders that bars us from building pipelines, stops pipelines and costs us jobs immediately, vilifies the oil and gas industry while having a trucker strike on not a trucker strike, a trucker shortage on top of that. And next thing you know, gas and oil is up. I was telling more people said to me, you know, I thought I made the great move when we had all this natural gas explosion, changing my country, changing my gas to my house to natural gas. And now all of a sudden that number's going up. So you look at the oil and gas industry, you see what's going on with inflation, and you can't say it's divorced from Joe Biden's policies. And people are ticked off. Really ticked off. Tim Kaine knows it. He's an experienced politician. I believe he was also he was a vice presidential candidate. Cut 11. I'm nervous about the race, but less because of Joe Biden than it's just this is how Virginia governor's races go. I will say this. Republicans are very hungry. I mean, Virginia is not kind of the bluest state. We were redder than red when I got into state politics. Get this. We have not lost a statewide race, presidential, federal, or state for a dozen years now, and this is Virginia. And so Republicans are hungry. I mean, I'll give that to them. They're hungry and they got the right candidate. He's a very likable guy. So uh, you see Democrats wondering what's going to happen next year. Keep in mind, the biggest story of the midterms will be the end of Nancy Pelosi. Because how will he, she's like 120, how is she going to go back to minority leader and stick around in a party that clearly has passed her by? She's trying to wrangle votes for the fourth time in the last three months and got a... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Flat out, no. She's got a slim majority. When she had a commanding majority and loses 10 seats, they go, wow, this Nancy Pelosi gets her own way wherever she goes. She doesn't negotiate with Republicans. She's control of her own party because she uses leverage to do it. 
But now she doesn't have any room, and no Republican is going to bail her out, even on the $1.2 trillion. So she was supposed to have a vote on Tuesday. I heard that is now not going to happen because they don't have an agreement on anything. And that is the biggest news to come out of the midterms. Goodbye to this horrific speaker who has lost her mind, who has, uh, has the most embarrassing district in the country. Her house gets bigger, her refrigerator gets nicey, nicer, and San Francisco gets more homeless. That's her legacy. And you talk about polarization, Donald Trump, she's, she is the founder of polarization, who gets nothing but plaudits because, he's his, because of what she's done as the first female speaker. But it's not, it's not worthy. Hey, when we come back, we're going to be joined by Andrew McCarthy. Find out how much trouble former Governor uh, Andy Cuomo is in. And also, the vaccine mandate. Getting it reversed. Pretty tough. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I've always stood up for what's right. I've always been a person of integrity. I've always spoke honest. I'm from New York, man. Born and raised, 31 years, taking trains. Both my parents are immigrants. Both of them. Me and my sister are both people of service. She is a nurse and I am a police officer. Can you imagine what we've gone through in, in 2020? But the discussing politicians of the city, they are definitely taking advantage of the good people of New York City. I stand for what's right. And I don't believe what's happening right now is right. And it is your, uh, it's your choice. It's your option. What you decide to do, it shouldn't be an ultimatum. They're telling you you have a choice. But you not being able to feed your family or not have a pension, that's not a choice, man. That's an ultimatum. And those are tactics that manipulators and abusers use. Uh, that is Rysel Martinez. Uh, he, that was a message on Instagram, former NYPD cop, who basically said, I'm out of a job because I'm not going to get vaccinated. You're not going to tell me what to do. He also says I had natural immunity. So when you look at what's happening in New York as a cover of every newspaper, just as expected, there are 24, roughly 24,000 city workers from cops to firefighters, soon to be corrections. But right now you have EMS, which are attached to FND, uh, the, the fire department as well as sanitation workers, as I mentioned. Uh, so they're all off to the tune of 24,000 city workers are out. Now, 91% are vaccinated. The others, give them the testing option. Why do all the challenges fail in court? Since when can politicians decide what type of health care you get? Am I overstepping it? Andrew McCarthy joins us right now. Uh, he's a legal expert and will tell me now why these challenges keep failing. Andy, I'm surprised they all fail. Why do they? Brian, they fail in part because the federal courts um, give a lot of uh, very broad discretion to the state governments because historically um, the internal workings of the state, and that includes things like regulating uh, health care uh, and you know, uh, protecting people in times of uh, infectious disease, uh, that was typically a state concern, not a federal concern. So the federal courts have been very uh, reluctant, starting with Chief Justice Roberts, who basically says in the opinions that he's written in the COVID era uh, that, uh, you, you know, basically this is the, the bailiwick of elected officials 
and unelected courts should not get involved. These decisions should be made by the people who uh, answer politically to the people whose lives are at stake. So the federal courts are not much of an option. And as you know, Brian, like the state courts in most states are elected positions. They're not, um, you know, they're not like the federal court where the judges get appointed and they're supposed to have at least a modicum of independence. Yeah. So it's very, it's very hard to expect like state courts to buck. If you have democratic state courts, they're not going to buck democratic state governments. They just don't do that. Well, let's add to this. I always thought, like it or not, you got to deal with the unions before you come out with with these decrees. You totally right. bypassed the union and went and did this. So you also don't have any buy-in. Was was that a strategy you think that should have been considered? I don't think – well, certainly yes, and particularly in the Democratic Party where unions really punch above their weight compared to their influence in the broader country. You would think that no one would have to tell them that, right? That, you know, that's the way they're uh, – they're kind of organized as a as a party. But I think this is yet another iteration, Brian, and we see this in almost every issue we deal with across the board, where you've got a real struggle between uh, woke progressives and, uh, you know, kind of left of center, uh, middle of the road type Democrats who are the Democrats in most of the country, as opposed to the political class. So the you know the woke Democrats are very authoritarian, and they're uh, you know they want it their way or the highway, and you know every now and then you see these collisions where what they dictate is very different from what the what the man in the street or the person in the street wants. And right now, I think part of the reason you're seeing such a decline uh, for Democrats in the polls, and particularly a decline for Biden, is that. While these woke progressives are very loud and they have a lot of money and they have a lot of backing in the media, they are not representative of the everyday American, including the everyday American Democrat. So when you get to see what they want to do to the country, they're, you know, the polls start to reflect that. Uh, it certainly seems like it is the case. So Governor Cuomo last week found out that he was being charged. Uh, tell me about the seriousness of it. And here is the sheriff making the charge. And he was also throwing a, 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 a brushback pitch saying, essentially, you're a bully uh, and we're ready for you. We have a solid case. Um, our investigative staff did a marvelous job. I'm very proud of the work they did. Again, they took um, a very high profile investigation. They methodically broke it down. And, um, and I couldn't be more proud of them. They executed a lot of search warrants. So. Right way, Cuomo says, I would, like to, I would like to have all relevant documentation as it relates to the accuser. And so I guess there was, a fa- there was somebody on her side that ran against Mario Cuomo or had some, uh, as, I guess he's going to build the fact that this is, a, this is politically driven. Would, why do you think the sheriff would step out without getting the DA involved? Well, because in Albany, um, sheriff's an elected position. So... You know, he's playing to a constituency just like everybody else's. He's not uh, – I, you know, I come from the federal system, Brian, and I really think that there's – if you want to have an independent law enforcement, 
you know, it's it's obviously part of the judicial branch, so it's not going to be completely independent of the uh, – not the judicial branch, the executive branch. It's not going to be policy-wise completely independent. But if you want cases sort of decided by the rule of law rather than political considerations, you can't have, you know, these these top enforcement officials be elected because they have to they have to play politics and play the electorate. So he – the sheriff answers to an electorate just like the – the county uh, executive does and the county attorney does so he makes his own decisions because he's you know he's not worried about the county attorney like in in the federal system the fbi answers to the justice department in the state system the, the sheriff answers to the voters so you know he's not worried about what the county attorney thinks and look this is going to be a hard case it's going to be uh, her word against governor cuomo's but I must say, just as an old trial lawyer, if Cuomo thinks that he's going to put, you know, poke holes in her testimony by saying that someone who's tangentially related to her in some way um, ran against or was a political opponent of Mario Cuomo, he's going to lose the case because it's going to come down to whether people believe her version or his version of what happened in that room. And the thought that that's going to be much affected by, you know, the freight of uh, tangential people's political connections from a generation ago, I think he's he's crazy if he thinks he's going to make much headway with that. Well, former you see, Cuomo said on Sunday, uh, his attorney anyway, uh, accused Albany Sheriff Craig Apple and the state attorney general, Letitia James, of incompetence and abuse of the law after he was charged. He said in the last 72 hours, Sheriff Apple and Tish James have epitomized the worst combination of politics, incompetence, and abuse of the law. Uh, and yeah. that is actually what Andrew Cuomo tweeted out. Yeah, well, that doesn't mean that Cuomo didn't do it. But I said at the time, Brian, and I actually uh, I was on Fox the morning – that we had the that Apple gave his first press conference back in uh, August, I think it was, and I said at the time that I thought he was making a big mistake doing a press conference and calling um, the uh, Brittany Camisa, the woman who came forward, calling her the victim. It was like he had already decided that Cuomo was guilty, and he admitted they hadn't even done an investigation yet. Now, that doesn't mean Cuomo's innocent. Um, you know, gun to my head, I think he's probably. He's probably guilty. But the thing is, in Tish James' report, you've got like 10 or 11 women who gave a consistent version again and again. That ain't going to happen in a trial. In a trial, it's it's going to be her version, and it's not going to be supported by 11 other people. The jury isn't going to be allowed to convict because they think he probably did it since he always does it. That's not – you know, propensity is not a way that you get to convict people. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt – that this particular sexual assault, as it is alleged, happened, which means the big thing is going to be her credibility, and it's not going to be bolstered by 10 other women. That doesn't mean they lose the case, but I, I want people to understand this is a very different thing than the attorney general's report, which has kind of a, a building momentum to it because of the plethora of victims. So this one comes forward. There's 10 other names down there, 11 other names, depending on uh, depending on what's last right. paperwork you've seen. Do you think there might be one after another after another? Or do you think the sheriff reviewed all these cases and said this is the strongest? No, 
No, I think what happened here, Brian, because Albany, the Albany County Sheriff doesn't have jurisdiction over everything that's been alleged. And a lot of the things that are alleged about Cuomo are time barred as far as the, the law is concerned. You know, some of these allegations go back years. I think what happened here is uh, Ms. Camiso came forward and filed a formal complaint in August with the Albany County Sheriff's Department. And it, that's not the first that they had heard of it because it had been referred to them by the governor's office. They had to, under New York state law, once somebody – remember what happened is Ms. Camiso confided this in a friend in the office, and they went to the, to the governor's office, and they were required to refer it to the sheriff. But the sheriff took no action until Camiso herself came forward and filed a formal complaint. So the reason this is in front of the Albany County Sheriff is because the alleged victim came forward and made a complaint, and then the police investigated on the basis of that complaint and decided they had a case. But let's remember also, it's a misdemeanor case. So they're not charging him with the felony. He's, you know, I think the, he'd be a first offender if he gets convicted. And this is a this is a crime that uh, doesn't have. It's up to a year, I think, in uh, in prison. He probably wouldn't get any jail time, although he'd probably have to uh, register as a sex offender, and it'd be a very black mark on him. Right, we're going to um, get the sensational but, wa- uh, walk to get fingerprinted, aren't we? On Thursday. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, they yeah, but they're letting him surrender on a summons. They're, so far, they're not treating him like a normal criminal defendant, right? They're giving him a, at least that much. Not, they haven't gone out to arrest him. They haven't put cuffs on him, which they were they were they were saying in August that they might do that. So they gave him a summons. But every single person, Brian, who gets uh, apprehended, whether they surrender or they the cops go out and get him. They have to be processed like a criminal defendant, so he'll get fingerprinted and photographed just like everybody else does, and he'll have a bail hearing. It was as precipitous a fall as anybody I've seen in public life. It really is, uh, because it, yeah. it wasn't just one incident. It was a series of blows that brought him down to earth and then kicked him out of office. Lastly, on something in a movie set, not been on one in my life, in the middle of New Mexico, we know what happened. Alec Baldwin mistakenly shot a cinematographer and wounded another Question is, where do we go from here? Alec Baldwin spoke. Tell me if there's legal, if he's doing anything that could get him in legal trouble in this explanation. Cup 42. I can't answer any questions about the investigation. I can't. Okay. It's an active investigation in terms of a woman dying. She was my friend. She was my friend. The day I arrived in Santa Fe to start shooting, I took her to dinner with Joel, the director. We were a very, very, excuse me, we were a very, very, you know, well-oiled crew shooting a film together, and then this horrible event happened. Now, I've been told multiple times, don't make any comments about the ongoing investigation, and I can't. He is in shock. He has a nine-year-old son. You know, we are, you know, in constant contact with him because we're very worried about his family and his, his kid. So uh, the nine-year-old lost his mom. He lost a husband. Obviously, there's, he's distraught. But he's a producer on this set, and there is a, a sense that, that he was totally inaccurate when he called the crew well-oiled. They were all unhappy. People were walking off this set. The guy that handed him the gun seems to have a dicey record, got fired off a set two years ago. So some of the things that have come out make you think what, Andy, about where this investigation is going? Well, two things I'll say, Brian. Number one, what people should understand, and I really feel for him in this because this looks like a As tragic, do I. tragic mistake. Um 
But what people should understand is when he says he can't make a statement, he can make a statement. He's been he's being advised by his own attorneys, and as you could tell from the from the statement he made, um, you know he's not exactly following the advice. But he's being advised not to make statements, which is what lawyers tell their clients. Um, my view of this, for what it's worth, and this uh, this is coming from someone who's a prosecutor for 20 years, the, the criminal law is best applied when it's applied to intentional wrongs. And this was not an intentional wrong. This was a terrible tragedy. I really hope there's no criminal prosecution out of it. That doesn't mean that, you know, technically there might be some, uh, you know, negligent homicide if somebody wants to dig like that. But I don't see what's served by, by prosecuting something like that. And I get the sense from Baldwin that, you know, he probably won't have to be pushed to have a if – if there needs to be a financial settlement in this, yeah. that's probably something they can work out quietly. I just wish that, you know, for their – for the sake of the family and even for the sake of Baldwin, who's, who's got to be going through a terrible time, I just wish they'd be able to quietly settle Handle this. It. And I hope it doesn't end up in a criminal lawsuit. I hear you. Uh, Andy McCarthy, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. All right. one uh, 408 We're going to come back with your calls. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Look, this is a case where I've asked this, where the political eyes bigger than the political stomach when you guys propose what you did, because this is a case where you've over-promised and under-delivered. You're talking about the things that are in this bill. Let's talk about what's not in this Why? bill. Paid Why? family leave yes. and prescription drugs. The fight is drug. not over, though, Chuck. This is not as though we're okay. done and we're going to go home. <laughs> Right, and that is uh, the Secretary of Energy, Granholm, what a disaster she's been. And what Chuck Todd, who wants this thing to pass more than anybody else outside Joe Biden, is saying, you guys can't get this done. You've been talking about this since the spring. In June, you had a bipartisan infrastructure. You couldn't get it, Bill, and you couldn't get it to a vote in the Senate, in the House, and you would have got at least— He's not saying this. I'm telling you this. At least 50 Republicans vote for it. But instead, you linked it to this other package. And because you linked it to the other package, nothing gets done. It created more friction, more bitterness, because you can't get 200-plus people to agree on anything, let alone ideologue. So instead of having a vote on Tuesday, you have a package that no one seems happy with, that maybe Manchin will sign off on, maybe Cinema will sign off on, that does not have the backing of socialist Bernie Sanders, because it doesn't have everything paid for and everything for free, the expansion of Medicaid, the free community college, uh, the free uh, paying for paid leave for your family. IRS wants billions of dollars to go after so-called rich tax sheets. Universal pre-K looks like it's in. But guess what? They're still having that climate civilian corps. What a travesty that is. Imagine people knocking on your door telling you to shut your lights. That's what's going to end up happening. But they can't even get it to a vote. And yeah, I think they'll get something, but they've already embarrassed the president because he went overseas to talk clean energy and he doesn't have anything in a clean energy bill to talk about. In fact, Manchin nicks $275 billion of it. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. 
Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world, where New York is really coming apart, where 28,000, 34,000 people have been told don't come to work. Firefighters, cops, as well as sanitation workers, because they're not vaccinated. Even though about 90%, 84%, 91% are vaccinated city workers, they're saying November 1st is the day. An unnecessary calamity is taking place. You're talking about dozens of firehouses just shut down. So you have a heart attack, your house is on fire, good luck, everybody, because you're on your own. They asked volunteers to come from Long Island and from Westchester and upstate to help out in New York City. Forget it. Have these guys or a brotherhood, they're not going to cross a line and help out this mayor because he has this ridiculous draconian policy when it comes to mandates and comes to vaccinations. A joke. Meanwhile, more information that we have on who is in your kid's school Illegal immigrants, more in New York than just about any other state outside California and Texas. You got thousands who are here, and they don't even give an update to the principal or superintendent. They just show up. Few, many have special needs. Few have any type of educational background. All allowed to be given free access to your taxpayer education and your school. Is that okay with you? Big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Well, I think that one of the dynamics that's unfolding right now is frustration among moderate Democrats on Capitol Hill. They don't feel like the White House has a strong enough legislative strategy. The fact that President Biden didn't call for a vote on infrastructure on Thursday. I spoke to some people who said if he'd done that, it's possible he would have gotten it. Amazing. Spending Palooza has been a loser for Joe Biden. He's got a big-time losing streak. He feels good overseas. Going to Glasgow is there right now to give up oil and gas advantage and turn it all over to the Green Committee uh, and then tell the rest of the and tell everybody the earth is going to implode. Number two. Yeah. Terry McCullough loses, you know, can't bar the door. I mean, it's the deluge. Uh, because, you think look, it's that catastrophic? Yes, it's catastrophic, and, it's, and, it's, and it's a panic button, because last time a Democrat lost, and you know this, last time a Democrat lost Virginia, what, we lost 60 seats in the House, right? right. Virginia's governor's race. Never has one race said so much about a party politic and the country than the young McAuliffe race, Youngkin McAuliffe race, the last minute strategies that might just have blown up the former governor's face in the former governor's face, and who is likely to prevail on Tuesday, we will discuss. Number one, firefighters who are unwilling and who are taking a sick out like immature high school students compared to the firefighters who rushed in to save lives from the World Trade Center as it was crashing down. It just is such a disservice to the legacy. Yeah, uh, there we go. That was Elise Jordan. The mandate mania has turned into mandate insanity. Insanity. You know, I told you what's happening in the city. Who is picking up the trash? Who is walking the beat? Who's answering the five alarm fires? Too few. This is the uh, utter definition of a self-made crisis. Michael Goodwin writes about that in the New York Post. Joins us now. Michael, describe what it's like in the city right now. 
Well, Brian, good morning. Uh, look, I, I think that the uh, focus on the firehouses is obviously the most dramatic uh, example of this mandate madness. I mean, it, it, it boggles the mind. You know, I, I was in a taxi in the city over the weekend, and I'm thinking, is the driver vaccinated? Because I'm closer to this driver than I probably ever would be to the firefighters or to the police officers who are being drummed out of their work because of the vaccine mandate. What about clerks in a store or, or the, the post office workers, the, the mail carriers? I mean, you, you, you begin to line up all of these things and you say, yes, I, I believe in the vaccine. I believe people should get vaccinated. But when you make it a mandate, then you expose a lot of this fallacy that, well, if here, why not there? And if not there, why here? Uh, and yet the government goes full bore ahead. We've made a decision. That's it. Uh, I mean, it, it's unconscionable that you're shutting down firehouses in New York City uh, because you don't have enough firefighters to staff them. I mean, what happens when the police, what are the criminals going to do with all of this? Are they going to just wait for the police or the firefighters to come back? Of course not. They're going to exploit the opportunity that Mayor de Blasio has handed them. I mean, yeah. they're not stupid. They see the door is open. They're going to come through the door. When it comes to cops, Suffolk County, which if you're listening around the country is, is a county on Long Island, said, okay, I want to hire you. We're looking to hire 700 cops. You'll have better pay and you'll have less stress and you'll have more respect out in Suffolk County, New York. Same thing in Florida. They said, hey, fired uh, police officers, come to us. We need the help, better weather, and you, you'll get more respect. So far, 91% of the city workers are vaccinated. 24,000 city workers are not. But if you look at the percentages, 73% of the fire department, 84% of the NYPD, uh, 79% of sanitation's done. Michael, it's so easy. Bring in a testing option. Talk to the union directly. And then with the same way the NBA talked to their players first. You may not like it or do like it. So they did that, and they have a testing option. That's it. And if Or you have an antibody option. That's called respect for people that worked when you couldn't even figure out what was killing everybody. Remember the refrigerated trucks of dead bodies in New York City? They worked through all that. Well, and, and it's not only that, Brian. It, it, I mean, all that's true, but it also goes to this issue of what is the science here? As you mentioned, there's no longer any talk of herd immunity because they don't want to count the uh, natural immunities, the uh, antibodies that grow out of previous infections. They, they don't want to talk about herd immunity because that would then say, well, not everybody needs to be vaccinated. And you're right about the testing, too, because the, is the point to get people vaccinated or is it to make sure that people People who are who are sick and infected are not spreading it. Of course, it's the latter. So finding a negative test is as effective yeah. as a vaccine for the purposes of sending people to work. So all of these things make no sense, except if you are trying to demonstrate some sense of purity and virtue that has very little practical sense to it. it in fact, it has practical nonsense when you see the results of firefighters being uh, put off the job, firehouses being closed, Wait until there's a fatality. 
And, and if this goes on, there certainly will be a fatality that could have been prevented uh, had the mayor not gone this far. Then we will see, oh, my God, whose hands is the blood on? And I think that's going to point directly to the mayors, to the governors, and ultimately to the president, who have foisted this, this craziness on the public because they want to stand for something. You know, I just quickly, I mentioned over in my column over the weekend, Joe Biden, we saw him with uh, Macron from France in Rome. We saw him with the Pope without a mask. We almost never see him without a mask in the White House. Now, why is that? Why is it okay when you're on foreign soil not to wear the mask in face-to-face meetings, but not in the White House? There's something, there's something not pure about this, something that's not right about this kind of theater. Well, look at, yeah, theater. Look at Jen Psaki. She's got, she tested positive for the virus. There are just as many people getting the virus there as they were during the Trump White House. You just don't publicize it. Well, I have mild symptoms. Okay, fine. You have not, I've not seen any science that says it's harder for me to get it now that I've been vaccinated. What it is, is the symptoms are less. So I would love to know uh, if when how, when was this going to stop? And here's the slippery slope argument that I think is strong. The booster shot. Two shots aren't going to be good enough. Soon the booster is going to be mandated or you're not going to be considered vaccinated. There's plenty of room on that card to write in other dates. Remember, take out your vaccination card. Take a look at it. The other thing would be 5 to 11-year-olds. They're going to make those kids get shots. You just watch. By the new year, they're going to say you care. your kid cannot go to school unless your kid has a shot. And there's a lot of parents that are going to be fed up with that. And there's not going to be one Democrat outside the governor of Massachusetts, excuse me, Republican outside the governor of Massachusetts that's going to be in support of it. But I want to bring you to what one of your columns is about, and that's the ineffectiveness of Joe Biden. Seventy one percent of the country now says we're on the wrong track. Thirty seven percent say he can handle a crisis. That's pitiful. Thirty seven percent say he is competent. That's absolutely embarrassing. And only 28 percent say he's knowledgeable and experienced and professional. The bottom has fallen out, and I believe it started with Afghanistan. Oh, absolutely. That that was the first crack in the wall where people saw uh, not only his fecklessness, but, but his dishonesty, uh, the promises that we will get everybody out who wants to get out. It simply wasn't true uh, that we, we our, our military agreed with me on this about uh, closing down uh, the, uh, the Bagram Air Base. Not true. Nobody offered more troops. Not true. So there were lies upon lies that led to the deaths. And it was, it was chaotic. It was captured on television. And it was shameful for the United States of America. It was a moment of weakness delivered to us by a very weak president. And I think that is the common theme, Brian. We see it in every policy, Everything. whether it's the border, there's weakness, there's dishonesty, there's incompetence. Uh, I mean, this, this idea of paying the illegal migrants for their pain and suffering, it, it is outrageous to even think of that. But to, but to take taxpayer dollars and to give it to people who broke the law by coming here, because why? You want to demonstrate how bad Donald Trump was? Be, I mean, you cannot 
look at that and say that is not uh, that is another incentive for people to come the cartels the drug smugglers the people smugglers they look at that and they say look at this stupid america they don't only open the border they open their wallets for us let's go get it i mean it is unbelievable what this president is doing and i'm just very grateful that the that the american public is catching on i know if if the media will be the last to to admit it but the public is catching on nonetheless this is all they care about is january 6 i flip around i'm i'm astounded by it but and i am shocked so that's all they care about so now the president and the rest of the media doesn't want to talk about the supply chain don't want to talk about the empty shelves don't want to talk about inflation don't want to talk about the two percent growth and the 11 million jobs that are open while seven million are unemployed here's Kristen welker on this whole reconciliation package, we don't need, I fear will pass, but the president has gone to Capitol Hill twice and embarrassed himself, has not even asked for them to pass it. Cut 23. Well, I think that one of the dynamics that's unfolding right now is frustration among moderate Democrats on Capitol Hill. They don't feel like the White House has a strong enough legislative strategy. To mm-hmm. your point, Chuck, the fact that President Biden didn't call for a vote on infrastructure on Thursday. I spoke to some people who said if he'd done that, it's possible he would have gotten it and would have had enough votes to see it pass. Nancy Pelosi got up after the president left and didn't ask for the votes. He said, you guys got to pass this for me. Didn't ask for it. Didn't say, hey, 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 progressives, pass this for me. I'll go help you out on the stuff we don't get in. He didn't say, hey, moderates, you got to help me here. I'm about to be embarrassed on the world stage. He made a statement, delayed his fight, never asked for the vote. It's like not asking for the sale. And then Nancy Pelosi got up and goes, yeah, the president asked you to vote on it. They said, no, he didn't. And they basically kicked her out of the room. Yeah, I, I think uh, the Democrats have misplayed the Progressive Caucus all along. I think they have knuckled under to them very early in this. And, and, and I point to the way back when Elon Omar and her uh, open anti-Semitism, they could, Nancy Pelosi couldn't even bring herself to pass a resolution condemning anti-Semitism. It had to be condemning all hate as though they couldn't single out their own person. Uh, I mean, that's, that to me is what has happened to the Democratic majority. This is, this is the leadership. This is a leadership problem in the Democratic Congress. They will not stand up to the riffraff in their own caucus. And so they are now all becoming followers of the riffraff. The riffraff is calling the shots. They call themselves progressive, and I guess they are in their politics, but they are also harboring anti Semites and others who don't like America at all, and this is this is what Nancy Pelosi has wrought. She and Chuck Schumer have turned over their power and given given the loudest uh, minority within their party all the power. So nothing will get done until Bernie Sanders, who's not even nominally a Democrat, uh, until Bernie Sanders and AOC and Elon Omar and Tlaib and a few others, until they are happy, only then will the Democrats move. I mean, this this is yeah, madness, but they is. have created it for themselves. Yeah, Bernie Sanders, the guy that used to be isolated in his own mind and his own world, is now front and center as the rock star over there. Good luck with that. Um, Michael Goodwin, thanks so much. I read your column today. It just set us up perfect. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. All right. Meanwhile, uh, when we come back, calls one 408 7669 Also, you can write me, com. Just click on comments. I'll be able to get to it. Then Niall Ferguson, senior fellow at Hoover, Hoover you're going to love his brand new book. Don't move. 
Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Workers have not returned to the labor force in America as fast as your administration thought they would. Why do you think that is? Why aren't Because they're able to negotiate for higher wages and they like move from one job to another. That's one of the reasons why. A lot of people don't want to continue to do the job they did before, making seven, eight, nine bucks an hour. An awful lot of, of the auto, excuse me, of the truck drivers are not unionized truck drivers. They're working like hell. I, I cannot believe that's his explanation about what's going on with our economy and supply chain. How about this? Thousands of all empty slots for truck drivers to pick up containers. No one's showing up. What are you doing to attack the truck driver situation? Why did you eliminate the National Guard? What other options? Americans respect hustle. Not every time everything we do comes out right, but at least you could die trying. No one thought that Donald Trump thought the border was going great when it wasn't. No one thought the negotiations with China were going great when it wasn't. He let you know his frustration. He let you know the progress. He let you know about the USMCA replacing NAFTA. He let you know about uh, Iran. He let you know how he used his leverage. Jared used his leverage to get the Abraham Accords. Along the way, you said to yourself, what's going on in the Middle East? It seems to be falling apart. Then things start coming together. But we see the supply chain. We see the border. He's not doing anything about it. And that's his explanation for the first time when he takes open questions uh, in months. Alex, listening in California. Hey, Alex. Hi. I want to propose a compromise on how we deal with the vaccine mandates and, in general, the pandemic. So I think there should be a federal law that allows any organization in the U.S., to choose to abide by the advice of any health agency in a Western country. So, for example, uh, the policemen in New York City, if they can find a health agency in a, West, in a European country that opposes vaccine mandates, then they should be allowed to abide by that, uh, you know, that, that status, that is not to, take the, uh, not, to, not to be forced to take the vaccine. So the justification for all this is that health agencies in other Western countries are at least as good as the CDC in the United States. I like it. Uh, let's see. Let's push out the challenge. But what you're painting is exactly what I worry about. You're, you're challenging. What could be next? So we okay the vaccine while we're in the middle of a pandemic. Okay, another variant. Delta variant's the worst. This is worse than the Delta variant. Now we all need a boost to this because it's the worst ever. And if you don't get it, then you're going to pass it on to somebody else. So do your neighbor a favor and do it. And I'm demanding you don't kill your neighbor. I'm demanding that you get a flu shot. This is the worst flu ever with the pandemic. we got to stop the flu. Okay? Don't tell me you're not going to be outraged in about two years when this never stops. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Do you agree with the CDC's decision to vaccinate children uh, 5 to 11 with the Pfizer vaccine? Uh, Absolutely not. The fact of the matter is, 
the mortality rate for children uh, from COVID-19 uh, is 0.025, which is very similar to the rate for seasonal flu. And we haven't been for years and years going through all these uh, things for seasonal flu. Uh, plus, we don't know what the long-term impact of these vaccines is. So this is really sort of a giant experiment. Uh, that is Ben Carson yesterday with Maria talking about the, uh, well, we, we have, we're in the middle of New York right now where 24 to 28,000 people said, if you don't get a vaccine, don't come to work. So we're missing firefighters, cops, and sanitation workers. What else is new? Uh, so another catastrophe, man-made catastrophe, all about a pandemic we still haven't gotten a hold of. That, according to Niall Ferguson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, author of Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe in the 2017 book that we've talked about quite often, uh, The Square and the Tower, Networks, Hierarchies, and the Struggle for Global Power. And I do want to talk about Facebook and what it means. But, uh, Neil, welcome back. Great to be with you, Brian. Hope you're well. Good. Uh, first off, you, you write in your book in the beginning, you, you were kind of ignoring this, this uh, virus, right? We didn't quite know what it was, but you were still flying around pretty late. Well, I don't know how late. I mean, it was January, February of last year uh, at a time when most people were paying no attention whatsoever. My problem was I I knew we had a pandemic on our hands, but I had to kind of uh, persuade myself to act accordingly. And it wasn't really till the end of February that I said to my wife, you know what, I think we should go to Montana and just uh, lie low till this thing thing is, uh, is over. We ended up spending a year there. Pretty enjoyable year, I must admit. Yeah. It's a pretty enjoyable year, but what are you saying, like, right now? Why were we so slow to pick this up? Because we just managed to beat all the other pandemics in the past? Well, it's a difficult question. Or let it rip. There was a smart way to respond back at the beginning in January of 2020, which countries like Taiwan and, and South Korea did. That is, they ramped up testing they really did their best to try and trace people who were infected. And when they found them, they isolated them. And we didn't do any of that. I mean, just to give you an example, CDC completely failed uh, to make uh, testing possible in the United States for months. So right into March, we really had no idea who had uh, been infected. So there was a way of handling this that would have been better. We left it until mid-March to hit the panic button. And then many states followed the European example of of very drastic lockdowns. The problem with those was that they cratered the economy. And that led to a chain reaction where, to offset the cratering of the economy, we had to print enormous numbers of dollars to try and keep, keep the economy afloat. So you look back and you say, well, we spent a huge amount of money. We, we caused the federal debt to soar almost like it was a world war. What was the public health benefit of the lockdowns? And it wasn't that huge because, let's face it, an enormous number of Americans died prematurely because of this virus. And we can see countries around the world where, in relative terms, the numbers were much, much lower. The only good thing, Brian, the thing that we should keep celebrating is that the U.S. was one of the key countries uh, that found a vaccine with high efficacy. And that, in a pandemic, that's the most important thing. You can, you can screw everything else up. If you find a very effective vaccine, then you've won the gold medal and the U.S., blazed the trail uh, along with uh, the German company BioNTech, which, of course, worked with Pfizer and the UK's AstraZeneca. And that's the big success story that I think in a strange kind of way we've decided to kind of ignore or even hate on. And I'm one of those people who thinks we should celebrate our success with the vaccines rather than tie ourselves in yet more knots 
uh, arguing about whether to take a vaccine or not, Brian. It's really simple. I mean, the truth is that the, the danger from the virus is about two orders of magnitude greater than the danger from the vaccine. And uh, about 100 to 200,000 Americans died prematurely in the, the last six or, or eight months when vaccines were available because they believed the vaccines were more dangerous than the virus. And that's just wildly, wildly wrong. Absolutely. And uh, Gary Zuckerman, who did this great book on you know the, the shot and, and what happened to do, and it was going to happen in America, the, the combination of government control and private industry and the government getting out of the way to let private industry race towards this shot. They said it will ultimately might even go down as equal to the Manhattan Project in effectiveness. Do you think you would, would you rank it that high? Well, the Manhattan Project was an extraordinary feat of scientific uh, innovation that ended World War II. I wish we could say that the COVID vaccines had ended the pandemic as swiftly. Uh, I think future historians will look back and say, after the triumph of Operation Warp Speed, which really was an extraordinary feat, why did the United States fail to capitalize on these extraordinarily efficacious vaccines? Why did so many people, I mean, up, at times up to a quarter of adults, refuse vaccines that were clearly safe and with very high, amazingly high efficacy, above 90%? And I think the answer to that question is going to have to do with, and you mentioned it already, Brian, the, the very pernicious role of the big social media platforms in spreading crazy conspiracy theories about the vaccines. I mean, there was a point at which uh, YouGov did a poll that showed that half the people refusing the vaccine, refusing to accept it when it was available, said it was because the vaccine would be used to implant a microchip in their bloodstream. Crazy, magical thinking is very pervasive in the United States. And if you ask the question, well, where did this come from? Because we didn't used to think this way. In the 1950s, when you offered people vaccines for the Asian flu or for polio, they were lining up like, let me have the vaccine, especially because I want to protect my kids. And we've gone back to the Middle Ages in our thinking about these issues. And I think the answer to the question is that anti-vax conspiracy theories are promoted by companies like Facebook. Oh, I forgot. We have to call it Meta now in ways that they knew were harmful, that probably led to the deaths of between 100 and 200,000 people. And yet nobody is held accountable. In fact, we have to sit watching this laughable makeover uh, by Mark Zuckerberg of, of his company. So I, I'd say that's the answer to the question. A couple of things, too. I, I think that if Donald Trump wins re-election, there would have been a huge portion of Democrats who, who wouldn't have got a vaccine because they're going to say exactly what Kamala Harris said, what Joe Biden said. Oh, if Donald Trump's involved, I don't know, I don't know if I would trust it, to paraphrase. Well, so we would have had Democrats a different challenge. Yeah, I mean, the Democrats uh, not only sought to delegitimize Operation Warp Speed, but they also tried to blame everything that went wrong in 2020 on Donald Trump. And I remember discussing this with you when the, the, the book Doom came out, the argument that it was all Trump's fault, that you could explain every excess death by blaming it on the president never made any sense to me since it was so obvious that the public health bureaucracy was really failing and had failed from the get-go. I'm not denying that Donald Trump made mistakes, but I don't think they were really crucial in causing the pandemic to spread so destructively 
through the United States population. So I, I worry that we politicize things that really shouldn't be politicized. There really shouldn't be a political debate about whether it's rational to vaccinate the population in the face of a new pathogen. If you could bring Dwight Eisenhower and his generation uh, through time machine to, to the, the present and, and you explain to them, well, we have a vaccine that has 90 plus percent efficacy, but we can't persuade people to take it, they would be absolutely baffled. Because back in the 1950s, there wasn't the same politicization of the issue. Democrats and Republicans weren't fighting over whether you should get vaccinated. It was just recognized that in the face of a, of a new virus, that was the smart thing to do. And remember, one of the reasons that the Eisenhower administration moved so fast to get a vaccine in 1957 was that they wanted to keep the economy going. And they knew that there really wasn't uh, a way of, of halting the spread without uh, shutting the economy down. So they didn't even consider lockdowns. They didn't uh, close schools in 1957, even although that, that virus was actually more dangerous to kids than uh, COVID-19. So do you notice any consistencies, as you wrote, Doom, with uh, mistakes they have made in the past? So you're saying you said, though, you know, we didn't make some of those mistakes in the recent past, but in the in the in the past pandemics in 1918, would you say we made some of the same mistakes again? Well, in 1918-19, we faced a much more deadly virus. Uh, the the uh, so-called Spanish influenza killed roughly 10 times the share of the world's population that COVID has killed, even if you accept the highest possible estimate that The Economist magazine has come up with. So it was a much, much more deadly pandemic. And we didn't have the medical science that we have today. They, they could not figure out a vaccine in 1918, 19. They didn't really have a good way of dealing with secondary infections. A lot of people died of pneumonia-like infections to the lungs. They didn't have the medication. They didn't have antibiotics to deal with that. So it was a much bigger disaster. And we sometimes forget this because, of course, we are inclined to depict this as an absolutely huge disaster. It, it basically one-tenth the size of 1918-19 in relative terms. But I think what's familiar if you read the history of 1918-19 is that public health officials, particularly in New York State, which was one of the most uh, uh, worst, one of the worst affected, one of the earliest affected, public health officials were in the same kind of denial uh, at the critical early stage. Uh, and, and that I remember vividly uh, last year uh, causing a kind of deja vu because I felt the way that the public health bureaucracy dealt with COVID was somewhat familiar. They, they basically were ready for the a different kind of pandemic. And that was why they were debating, uh, you know, January, February into March, well, what do we do? And instead of racing to get testing capacity and racing to make sure that we could actually identify the infected and isolate them, they they fiddled while while the, uh, the population's right. health burned. And then you shut down a whole country when it wasn't even near us. And then when you opened up the country, they got hit. And then they got shut down again. They said, what am I shut down for? There's not one case in Arizona, not one case in Florida. Right. And then as it waved through, people were already burnt out and distrustful. But uh, a fascinating book. I got to bring it to other area of expertise, and that's social media. You told me in 2016 in your book, uh, you said, look out. And in, in our conversation, look out after Donald Trump won using social media so effectively, Facebook specifically, there is going to be hell to pay because if, uh, Silicon Valley is embarrassed because they were used to work to, to elect the worst person in history, I say with air quotes, Donald Trump. And they yeah. did in 2020. And now they f shut him down entirely. 
But a couple of things are happening. Now Democrats have turned on Facebook. It's all guns ablazing on Facebook. We got to take them down. Let's give uh, let's lawyer up the whistleblower and let's get around speaking globally and let's bring her in front of Congress. I feel like I'm being manipulated. What's going on here? Well, I think you are. We all are, Brian, because in truth, it's not just Facebook that is the problem. I mean, you could say all of the things that we've been hearing recently from the whistleblower uh, via the Wall Street Journal and other outlets about uh, about YouTube, about Google or Alphabet, its parent company. Uh, you could, uh, I think, make the same comments about the manipulation of pr- private personal data uh, by Apple. Big big tech is is not just one company. And I think what's happening is that the Democrats are trying to direct all the fire and all the hate on Facebook. Uh, and then they're going to go through these antitrust actions. And I would think that after a very long period of time, the only one that will really produce a result will be the one against Facebook. And maybe, maybe they'll end up forcing Mark Zuckerberg to give up Instagram, give up WhatsApp. He's racing to make that impossible. Uh, But I think that's one possible outcome. But none of that really addresses the fundamental problem, which is that the public sphere is now dominated by a handful of big tech companies. They have completely supplanted television, newspapers, and with all due respect, radio. They dominate to the extent that everybody in the media ultimately measures their success by the extent to which they get traction on social media. And this has created immense power in the hands of a tiny number of executives in Silicon Valley to the extent that earlier this year in January, these companies, including Amazon, let's not forget, which controls in Amazon Web Services, the biggest cloud platform on the planet, they shut down the president of the United States. They basically canceled Donald Trump. Now, you can say whatever you like about Trump's actions on January the 6th, and I certainly was highly critical of them, but that's different. Uh, It seems to me a completely different subject from whether a few companies have the right to shut down the elected president of the country. Absolutely. That was the real coup that happened in January of this year, not the rabble that invaded the Capitol. True. Uh, the other thing is being shut down. Uh, and then you see Donald Trump over, over offer his own SPAC and got $300 million. And I think he might be coming back. But I'm going to bring up just two real quick examples because I'm over. But Donald Trump is just as popular, in fact, more popular now than he was before he got shut down. Number one. So anyone who thought they marginalized him is yeah. wrong. And I was talking to Mark Levin the other day. Do you know he was the number one book in the country, sold million copies after a month? Just on his radio and TV, he doesn't. He shut down his own social media after what he saw they did to Trump. And I'm just wondering, are we in an echo chamber saluting these social media companies to a degree? Well, a couple points real quick, Brian. I think firstly, ironically, taking Trump off Twitter has boosted his popularity. Because I know many, many people who said, you know, I agree with a lot of things that President Trump has done, but oh man, can you get him off Twitter? Well, they oblige, and I think that's part of the reason why his popularity is actually not just holding up but improving. People quite like not being under a constant crossfire uh, of tweets. The second point I'd make is that, yeah, you know, the power of Facebook is probably waning. The trouble is the thing that is posing the biggest challenge to Facebook is uh, is TikTok. And TikTok is a Chinese-owned uh, company that is currently sending the data of American teenagers mainly uh, back to Beijing for analysis. So I'm not quite as optimistic as you. I do think that the big irony of canceling Trump, uh, kicking him off all of social media, is that now Americans have a chance to kind of look 
back on what he did rather than what he tweeted. And everywhere, you can see this all over the country, people are looking around and saying, I'm looking at the economy, I'm looking at the southern border, I'm looking at crime, I'm remembering the Democrats claimed the pandemic would end the minute Joe Biden was sworn in. And they're saying to themselves, you know what, when I look back on what Trump did rather than what he tweeted, that was actually a much preferable yep. administration to this one. Then, oh my goodness, to, to say the least. Neil, Fer I think um, Democrats would admit that in closed circles. Neil Ferguson, thanks so sure. much. Congratulations on your book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, uh, and The Square and the Tower is awesome too. Neil, thank you. Thanks, Brian. You got it. Uh, back in a moment with your calls. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. As flawed as America was for the African-American, as brutal as the African-American experience was early, he wanted to make the country better. He didn't want another country. I think that's the part that people don't know about Frederick Douglass. He wanted to make his stand here, it, almost in biblical terms. He saw the promise of America, which is hard to do when you're being beaten. So Douglass's gift was he never let the slave owners own him, not just physically in the showdown, but emotionally, spiritually, he transcended it. And that is Douglas Brinkley, and that was a, a, a cut from a special that airs November 7th on my book that comes out tomorrow, The President and the Freedom Fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul is our most critical time. I uh, cannot wait for all of you to read it. If you go order, it would be great. I don't think you'll regret it, especially in this war on American history that we're in the middle of. I'll be in Manhasset signing the book at Publicans uh, on Wednesday, November 3rd, beginning at 6. Just register online. Same thing at Staten Island, Barnes & Noble at the Staten Island Mall over um, in Richmond Avenue. Just register that you're going to come. And then Lawrenceville, Georgia, Lawrence, Lawrenceville, Georgia on the 5th. Lexington, Kentucky on the 6th. But I want everyone to meet me in a matinee performance November 7th, 4 o'clock in West Virginia at the Charleston Coliseum. Another big event be November 21st, Orlando. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. Elise Stefanik, no stranger to the New York marketplace. Congresswoman from upstate, chair of the House Republican Conference, member of the House Armed Services Committee, waiting, standing by, as well as Brett Baer, an intelligence committee, I should say. Uh, Brett, uh, here's his show and his book. His show's doing great, and his book is doing even better. Number one in the country right now. Uh, we'll talk about that. I'm also going to be doing an event with him in Naples, Florida. We'll get to details on that, along with Dana and Jesse and Harris Faulkner and Shannon Bream. 
So before we get to uh, Congresswoman Stefanik, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Well, I think that one of the dynamics that's unfolding right now is frustration among moderate Democrats on Capitol Hill. They don't feel like the White House has a strong enough legislative strategy. The fact that President Biden didn't call for a vote on infrastructure on Thursday. I spoke to some people who said if he'd done that, it's possible he would have gotten it. Kristen Walker, uh, meet the press. Spending Palooza has been a big loser for President Biden and the Democratic Party. They put off another vote. It was Tuesday. They were supposed to have a big vote while the president jetted off to Glasgow. He's speaking in Glasgow without a deal. Energy prices soar. The, we know about the, uh, the supply chain being stuck. And the president talks about bringing our energy uh, sector to a halt while looking good in front of the Greens. Not good with me. Number two. Yeah. Terry McCullough loses, you know, Katie barred the door. I mean, it's the deluge. Uh, because, you think look, it's that catastrophic? Yes, it's catastrophic, and it's, a, and, it's, and it's a panic button, because last time a Democrat lost, and you know this, last time a Democrat lost Virginia, what, we lost 60 seats in the House, right? right. Yeah, the Virginia governor's race never has one race, had so much, said so much about party politics in the country as the Youngkin McAuliffe race has. I'll get the congresswoman on that. Number one. Firefighters who are unwilling and who are taking a sick out, like immature high school students, compared to the firefighters who rushed in to save lives from the World Trade Center as it was crashing down. It just is such a disservice to the legacy. Yeah, that's Elise Jordan, a commentator on MSNBC. She doesn't understand they are the same firefighters. Mandate mania has turned into mandate insanity. The 224,000 New York City workers have either quit, been suspended, or called in sick because of the mayor's idiotic vax or out policy. Who's picking up the trash, walking the beat, answering the five-alarm fires? Too few. This is an utter definition of a self-made crisis. Congresswoman Stefanik, people are listening around the country, but... Uh, our WABC, WRCN listeners are listening in New York. They can't believe this is happening right now. How did we get here? We got here because of authoritarian, unconstitutional leaders in our country, Brian. And uh, we've seen this in the healthcare sector when the vaccine mandate went into place. Uh, there was a hospital in my district, which was the first hospital in the country that announced that the maternity ward was closing because they were such staff shortages, they were not able to deliver babies. Uh, now we're seeing that this is impacting city workers and first responders, and of course, in, uh, impacting the private sector with some of the larger businesses where there is the mandate that has uh, come down and, and embraced, unfortunately, by some of these businesses. But when we think about New York, Brian, New York has been in crisis for the past year. It has been unsafe. Crime yeah. rates have skyrocketed. And to penalize law enforcement officers, first responders, city workers who put their lives and health on the line, um, and many of them contracted COVID, have that natural immunity, they should be able to make that individual decision based upon conversations with their doctor. Now that you have all these crises from last year, it's only going to skyrocket this year. Already we're hearing of fire department companies uh, having to close. You saw an announcement you saw an announcement this morning from one of the fire uh, chiefs that the wait times would be longer for first responders. Again, this is going to have really negative impacts on everyday New Yorkers. Right. 72% of FDNY workers have been vaccinated that by the November 1st deadline, meaning up to 4,000 workers might be terminated as soon as today, certainly put off on leave. Now they're asking for volunteer firefighters from upstate New York and Long Island to help them out and Staten Island. Forget it. They're not going to do that. Well, upstate 
upstate New York, I mean, listen, I meet with the fire departments all the time in my district. We already face short staffing here. We're rural communities. Um, you know, the requirements is getting more and more onerous in order to get that certification required for fire departments. So we don't have extra labor to send down to the city. This is a self-made crisis by the mayor, Mayor de Blasio, by Governor Hochul. And New Yorkers are going to unfortunately pay the price, uh, both in terms of, you know, longer response times. And I think you're going to continue to see crime increase. Couple other things, and it was pretty stunning news. I knew it was happening because I talked to people all the time. But as you find out with these, uh, with these unaccompanied minors, they'll land, a lot of them are landing in New York. We saw that big story about three weeks ago. But do you know that thousands are already registered in New York area schools from Long Island, Nassau, Suffolk County, as well as uh, Queens County, uh, especially in Brooklyn too, have thousands that have come here without even telling the superintendents. They show up. N- most don't speak the language. Most are teenage boys, and they're stuck in classrooms that are already overcrowded. Some don't even speak Spanish, and some have special needs. They're costing uh, our taxpayers in this area $24,000 per kid. How do they get away with this? Well, they shouldn't get away with it. This has been a lawless administration. I mean, look at the news, Brian, that the Biden administration is considering paying $450,000 to illegal immigrants who were separated at the border uh, a few years ago. That is only going to pour fuel on the fire of the already raging crisis at our southern border. But, you know, you talk about the $24,000. That's just, you know, one year. This is going to be a generational cost for American taxpayers. And it's not who we are as a country in terms of rewarding those who broke the law. We want to uh, make sure that we improve legal immigration in our country, which is what Republicans stand for, legal immigration, not continue to reward those who come here illegally. And again, we saw this past year is the highest number of illegal border crossings on our southern border in the past 30 years. September was the highest on record. That is only going to go up as the Biden administration is putting these you know, pro-amnesty policies in place. Yeah, yeah, these four counties, as I mentioned, New York, Brooklyn, Queens, Suffolk, Nassau, 5,000 kids. That's going to be an overall cost of the 28,000 kids, $139 million to taxpayers because he refuses to close the border or put together any of the policies that would slow it down and stop sending signals to Central and South America to come. So get this, in New York City, as you know, you get a free public education up to the age of 21 if you are here. Don't even have to prove citizenship, which means you could have a 20-year-old in high school sitting next to your teenager who might be affiliated already with MS-13. That's not a theory. The MS-13 gangs are here, and they send them here with as unaccompanied minors. They give them jobs. They pretend to be students, and they continue their gang activity in our country. It's, it's outrageous. I mean, it makes us less safe as New Yorkers. It makes this country less safe. And I know, having served with some of my downstate colleagues, downstate colleagues, the great Pete King, Lee Zeldin, uh, Garbarino, they have talked about the MS-13 crisis that's happening in New York State and particularly the city areas. Um, and it puts the safety of our, our students at risk who sit in those classrooms. And it puts the taxpayers on the hook for generations to come. So let's take a look at the uh, Virginia governor's race and what it means for the country. Uh, Terry McAuliffe is beginning to panic after trying to adhere uh, Youngkin to Trump, even though every time he says, Trump endorsed me, thank you, but I'm running as my own candidate. He suddenly reversed himself yesterday. Cut five. But you know, Dan, this isn't about Trump. You know, so this is about what's happening here in Virginia. 
And it's not about Trump. It's about who's going to take Virginia to the next level, get us through this COVID crisis. Really? It's not about Trump? Is this strategy that they thought was so effective in getting Gavin Newsom, preventing him from being recalled? Is it now, are they realizing now it's got limited effectiveness? Well, that's all the Democrats have to run on, Brian. For the past four years during the Trump administration, all Democrats ran on was opposition to President Trump. And that is not a winning strategy, particularly as we're seeing how quickly the policies of Joe Biden are causing crisis after crisis in America. We have seen in just 10 months, unified Democratic government has led to a border crisis, a labor shortage crisis, a supply chain crisis, an inflation crisis, a constitutional crisis. And I think Youngkin has the momentum behind him. He has had huge turnout of events. And it's not just Republicans. It's independents and Democrats who are fed up with the far left, um, you know, politically correct leadership. And the education issue is so, so important in Virginia. Glenn Youngkin has had a message for Virginia. Terry McAuliffe never has. No one can really say what his plans are for Virginia other than embracing far left socialist policies because he's obsessively tried to make this about President Trump. And Youngkin is focusing on the issues that matter, parental rights in schools when it comes to educating our kids, which I think that is going to be the key issue this election cycle. And it's why you see the poll numbers skyrocket for Youngkin. Uh, I want you to hear, just so you know, there's, uh, McAuliffe says it doesn't exist. That's an interesting tact. When there is, we, we could show you in the, in the curriculum where it exists. But Donna Shalala, if nothing, if not experienced, uh, the former Florida congresswoman was on this week with George Stephanopoulos yesterday and said this about how she views it, Cut 15. I do think it's a local issue, but it's a national issue in the sense that Republicans are trying to undermine public education. I see it in Florida. I see it across the country, that they actually are attacking public education. They don't like the teachers' unions. Um, they don't like public schools. They want... It's not just parents having more control, and I believe parents should have control. And... Uh, and that's what we do with our school boards. But this is a very dangerous trend. And that's what we're seeing in Virginia. That's what we're seeing in Florida. So that's a totally different take, uh, Congresswoman Stefanik. That is the attack back at you. Yeah. Well, the attack back at me, first of all, parents do have a role. And by law, we pass legislation funding K-12 through schools. Schools are required to have parental engagement policies. They're required to show curriculum to parents. That's not what we're seeing in the state of Virginia. That's not what we're seeing teachers' unions, who, by the way, were the ones that advocated for the shutdowns of schools, which put our kids at risk and have had significant learning loss. Republicans and, frankly, parents and Americans across this country are fighting to preserve and strengthen our public education system from this leftist delusion that the teachers' unions have tried to put in place. And you know what's interesting? When I talk to teachers in my district who across the board are amazing, the unions are out of touch with the teachers, the people that want to prioritize the students every day. That's not the union heads. The teachers have faced these challenges. The unions are woefully out of touch with their own members. But parents are standing up of all political ideologies. Again, this is not a Republican or Democrat or independent issue. This is about about, you know, parents' rights. It's about constitutional rights. What is going on, would you say, with the reconciliation bill? We watched, uh, we thought there was going to be a vote on Tuesday. Now that's been put off. We thought there was going to be a vote on Friday. That's been put off. There was supposed to be a vote before President Biden left for Glasgow. He came and spoke and that there was no vote after that. What have, I know you're on the outside and they're not even trying to deal Republicans in, but what are you hearing? 
Well, Democrats continue to be in disarray, and they have a very slim majority, only four seats in the House, and of course, uh, the challenge that they face in the Senate. Um, so there's a couple of different dynamics going on. First of all, Democrats want to negotiate this behind closed doors. They don't want the American people to know all of the details in the bill. Um, we, as Republicans, are making sure every American knows that not only is the largest tax increase and the largest spending bill in our nation's history, but it has far-left policy provisions like mass amnesty, like providing the IRS with $80 billion to allow them to spy on every working American's bank account. It eliminates the bipartisan Hyde Amendment that protects taxpayer dollars not going to fund abortions. So these are socialist policies that Democrats don't want the American people to understand are in that bill. They are being controlled by the far left. Basically, Pelosi and Joe Biden, frankly, have to go to AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Pramila Jayapal, and say, you know, mother may I, can I bring this to the floor? And it's going to be loaded up with socialist provisions. Um, uh, you know, they don't have the votes today. What I think is going to be most interesting is how quickly, if they do get a deal, they bring this to the floor, Brian, because it's going to be multi-thousand-page bill, and no Democrat is going to have the ability to read that entire bill, and they're going to be on the hook for voting for it against the wishes of their constituents. And I think this is why you're seeing plummeting approval numbers when it comes to Democratic leadership, Joe Biden's failed leadership of the country. Absolutely. And GOP against Dems on issues, according to an NBC poll. Well, the big picture looks pretty good for you guys. On border, you have a 27% advantage. On inflation, a 24% advantage. On best equipped to handle crime, 22. National security, 21. The economy, 18. And overall, getting things done, 13%. It's been a long time since I've seen numbers this uh, comprehensive and pervasive in Republicans' favor. What about you? Yes, it's funny you mention that because I have that poll right up on my phone as we're doing this interview. And these are the crises that we've been highlighting as a House Republican conference and really making sure the American people understand that it's a result of Joe Biden, House Democrats, and Senate Democrats' failed policies. They have failed America. It's crisis after crisis. And we not only are going to expose these crises, but we're going to talk about strong leadership on all these issues when it comes to securing the border, stopping these massive, massive spending packages to try to quell the inflation, supporting our law enforcement to make sure that we have safe cities, safe states in this country, and not this crime crisis that we're facing. The other poll number that I think is worthwhile to note is 7 in 10 adults, including almost half Democrats, believe the nation is headed in the wrong direction. That's, again, only after 10 months of failed policies from unified Democrat government. Wow. Thanks so much. Congresswoman, a lot going on. You're, you're right back in the middle of it as part of the leadership team on the House side. She's chairman of the House Republican Conference. Elise Stefanik, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. You got it. So much happening. Uh, meanwhile, we're in the middle of uh, a massive, which seems to be walkout, lockout, layoff uh, among cops, firefighters, and sanitation workers in the number one city in the country, uh, already ridden, overridden by crime and has a, a remarkable lack of tourists, which help fuel the local economy. So when we come back, your calls, one 408 Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
we've seen how presidents can turn the page very quickly from one to the other. So why should the world, you know, believe that when you say America's back, that really it's here to stay? Because the way they reacted, you were here. They listened. Everyone sought me out. They wanted to know what our views were. And we helped lead what happened here. It's just very simple. You know, if you're honest, no, you are honest. That didn't mean to imply you weren't. But that uh, we were, we got significant support here. Significant support. We're the most, the United States of America is the most critical part of this entire agenda. Uh, listen, because they sought him out, they thought Donald Trump was uh, abrasive. That is not the reason to think America's back. They got totally embarrassed on Afghanistan. They released the sanctions, so they got what they wanted. The way in which we we sold the missiles to Australia, I love the approach because we got to get uh, tough in that region with the Quad and get them nuclear subs. But you you cost France a hundred billion dollars. You didn't even know it. You look terrible. But the president is, is they do know him. It's probably good to see a familiar face. But you cannot tell me he's on his game. I mean, my goodness, I just listened to maybe five minutes of his speech uh, in Glasgow. It's absolutely awful. It's as if he didn't even pre-read it, let alone does he believe in it. And John Kerry's over there selling out our future. And the people that need to hear this are France, excuse me, are China and Russia. And neither one is there. China is building more coal plants than any other place on the planet. And we're sitting there going to destroy our oil gas industry because we want to look cool and we believe the world's going to come to an end. Where I've seen other science that says we're not even going to affect it no matter what we do. And it's got to be effective and work with our economy. Can someone take an interest in our national security? I mean, in our country? Because we seem very willing to give up on it. Listen, when we come back, I'll talk to Brett Baer about what's unfolding in Virginia. He's going to have some great coverage there. Tell you about an event we're both doing together. Uh, And also tell you that my book is out in 24 hours. And where to find out if I'm going to be in your city, and I hope I am, go to BrianKillMe.com. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Fox News Primetime hosted this week by Brian Kilmeade. Starts right now. Do you have a headline, Brian? Yeah, it is uh, uh, 24 hours. Brett Baer has a book that finally drops and can be purchased by the mass market. This is going to be a good week. And it was. He's, it turns out not only could they buy it, they did. He's number one in the country. Uh, Brett Bear, congratulations. Thank you very much. You know, it was kind of like the white whale. I could not get that sucker and uh, finally got broke through. So it was really, uh, really exciting this week. Yeah, to rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, the fragile union in the crisis of 1876. So, uh, yeah, and that'll stay up there, I'm sure. So, Brett, looking at what's happening now, you go into Virginia and we thought, wow, an off year, not even a midterm, but an off year election. What could be significant? Well, in New Jersey, it's probably not going to be close. Well, it's close, but not enough to get a lot of national interest. But Virginia is a different story. When did you realize this was a national story? I think once the um, parent stuff started happening, the school board uh, concern and the um, and the issues in Loudoun County, by the way, a special report we're going to do out of Loudoun County tonight, uh, talk to some folks out and about and uh, get their feelings on the election. I think when that started bubbling up, it had this feeling of a grassroots effort that crossed party lines, you know, that was non-ideological and more 
um, more about kids and parental control in schools. And then when that debate happened and Terry McAuliffe kind of stepped in it by his answer, uh, that changed the dynamic. Uh, no doubt about it. And the thing is, then it changed the polls. And then you look at something that's a dead heat. And it's kind of interesting to see that McAuliffe never backed off of it. But he did change his view on Donald Trump. Um, I, I, would, I could not believe that he said uh, this yesterday on, um, I think it was yesterday, when he came out and said that uh, Donald Trump is not the issue. Cut five. But you know, Dan, this isn't about Trump. You know, so this is about what's happening here in Virginia. And it's not about Trump. It's about who's going to take Virginia to the next level, get us through this COVID crisis. Really? He ran on him being Donald Trump. That's all That's yeah. all Joe Biden said and Barack Obama brought up when they came and acted as surrogates for him. No, that's, you know, listen, if you're going to run a campaign one way, stick to it. And the reason he's not is because he's realizing that perhaps it's it's turned the other way and, and the momentum's on the other side. Um, it, it does seem like, you know, in that appearance with Joe Biden, Joe Biden said it, the president said it 24 times. Donald Trump's name. And before that soundbite you just played, you know, it really was noun, verb, and Donald Trump with the Terry McAuliffe um, rally. So it's it's a little disingenuous. I mean, he's called Glenn Youngkin, Donald Trump, and tackies. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, they've gone over and above uh, to do that. In fact, there's a flyer out in Virginia that looks like a Trump endorsement with Youngkin and Trump next to each other. Um, and if you look closely at the fine print, it's from the Democratic Party of Virginia. Understood. Uh, here is Cornell Belcher on Meet the Press. He's representing the left side of the panel. Uh, listen to what he said. If, he, if, if this is, in fact, a McAuliffe loss, what it means, cut 14. Yeah. If Terry McAuliffe loses, you know, Katie bar the door. I mean, it's the deluge. Uh, because, you think look, it's that catastrophic? Yes, it's catastrophic, it and, it's a, and, it's the, and it's a panic button, because last time a Democrat lost, and you know this, last time a Democrat lost Virginia, what, we lost 60 seats in the House, right? right. So, I mean, they're not pulling, some people aren't pulling punches, others are trying to spin it immediately and just say local is local, and sometimes Virginia does elect Republican governors. Yeah, I think it does have broader impact, and I think it's right to point back to 2009 and then the following year, 2010. I mean, it it does have that same kind of feel to it. Um, past is not prologue, but it does feel like um, a little bit like that as, as the tides turn. I do think that what's happening on Capitol Hill also will be affected or might be affected by what happens Tuesday. Uh, they were trying, Democrats were, to get a vote tomorrow before the polls close in Virginia. And I think that's going to be really tough logistically um, because the second bill that progressives want to vote on is just not ironed out. And, you know, you're not going to get moderates who are demanding 72 hours to read a bill uh, that realize that this is a big moment, just like Obamacare was. Um, and so you're not going to have the 72 hours if they try to vote tomorrow. I mean, I saw some of the worst polling I've ever seen in my lifetime for Democrats. I mean, it looks like you looks like the personal approval rating of President Biden is down to 42 percent. It's significantly down even from uh, September when they asked uh, about the poll is they asked, uh, are we on the right track or wrong track? Seventy one percent said wrong track. Thirty seven percent said 48 percent of 48 de- percent Democrats. Yeah. 30, the majority of Democrats wrong track. 37% say the ability to handle a crisis. Only 37% believe he's good at it. 47% say he's not. 
only 37% says he's competent and effective. Uh, This is pretty horrendous. And I believe it starts with Afghanistan. I agree with you. And that was such a big moment that, you know, much of the media kind of turned the page quickly. There are still Americans trying to get out. And we remember, and you've talked about this a lot, you know, when the administration kept on saying, oh, there's about 100 or under 100. And then suddenly they say, well, we just got 245 out. And now we have 346 out. What happened to just 100? And it's really, that is the competency question that started, you know, bubbling up at that point. Yeah, and and we look at Afghanistan and we, we see that, Yesterday, Anthony Blinken was on television and was asked about this on about every channel. And he got really pressed a little bit by Dana Bash. And his uh, response, I thought, was just terrible. Basically, it's blame them for not getting out. Here's what he said. um, Cut 38. During the evacuation, uh, the extraordinary evacuation, which we got about 125,000 people out of Afghanistan, we got virtually all of the 6,000 who remained out. There were still several hundred who had told us they, at that point that they wanted to get out, uh, who were not able to get out by the 31st. And what we said was, we, there's no deadline to this effort. We will continue to get them out. Since August 31st, as of today, we've gotten out of the Americans left who said that they wanted to leave, uh, about 340. Um, but what's happened since is this. More people have come forward uh, in two ways. There were some small number of Americans in Afghanistan who didn't want to leave, who've now seen that we've successfully been able uh, to get uh, some of the few remaining Americans out, who've now come forward and said, we do want to leave. And there are a couple of hundred of those who are ready uh, to, to leave, and we will work to get them out. Do you have a backstory to this? I mean, it's, it's amazing, because he's saying these, these Americans are just popping out of the woodwork, coming out, uh, saying they finally want to leave. There's people on the ground that say, these people wanted to leave at the beginning and the administration didn't have a way and it was private groups and former special ops soldiers who were organizing this underground railroad uh, to get them out. Now, we're not even talking about the Afghan allies and the ones who are fought with us that are in real danger. Um, And you're in the thousands there. Yeah, and, and how about this? It's private groups that are getting them out, and the State Department in many ways has stood in their way. They will not even get ambassadors to work with us for a third country to get these planes to be able to land to evacuate. They have These private groups deserve the bulk of the credit, and most of them are sacrificing their own bank accounts and their own living to do this because they feel such a personal responsibility. So this is terrible. I'm just going to play another one. This is, this is Margaret Brennan, who had interviewed Ambassadors Kalazad, who— uh, judging by the results, did a terrible job in negotiating this exit. Cut 36. Ambassador Zameh Khalilzad, who resigned uh, this month as your envoy, was on this program last Sunday and told us that more could have been done to prevent the collapse of the government in Kabul, including pressing President Ghani harder. Should you personally have done that? Should you have been tougher? I was on the phone with, uh, with President Ghani on a, on a Saturday night, uh, uh, pressing him to uh, make sure he was ready to agree with the, the, the plan we were trying to put into effect to do a transfer of power to, uh, to a new government that would have been uh, led by the Taliban but been inclusive and included uh, all aspects of, of Afghan society. And he told me on the phone he was prepared to do that, but if the Taliban wouldn't go along, uh, he was ready to fight to the death. And the very next day he fled uh, Afghanistan. So um, 
I was uh, engaged with President Ghani uh, over many weeks, many months. From the Hamptons, uh, we should point out. And, and number two as well, the Taliban were going to head up a government. That's a great idea. Uh, and we, of course, we got everything was worse than that. So we already see some of the spinning. This is just not going to hold up to scrutiny, I wouldn't think, Brett. I don't think so. I mean, over time, the history will not look kindly on the Biden administration, its decisions, how it implemented. Uh, not the fact, and this was the straw man, that we were going to get out, that Afghanistan as a war was going to come to an end. It is how, how it happened and how that transfer of power happened. And, you know, you can go through it again and again and again, but it was not right. profile courage as far as uh, foreign policy. And I just think in terms of the military vote, uh, this was, uh, I, I think it's going to pay a price, especially in a very military-oriented area, especially around Virginia Beach and Virginia. But, Brett, you and I are going to be doing something. You've you're, uh, been kind enough to invite me to your benefit uh, at, for Children's National Hospital. You call it the All-Star Panel, uh, which you call everything the All-Star Panel. So I'm not too <laughs> sure this was a fair election. But the panel will include Dana Perino, who I've seen in the halls. Jesse Waters, I see his headshot everywhere. Harris Faulkner is really nice and competent, as is Shannon Bream, sarcastic, but yet nice. Uh, give everyone an idea. If they could get to Naples, uh, what, will, what they'll be experiencing. Yeah, I mean, it's the biggest all-star panel event we've had. So you go to allstarpanelevent.com, uh, you can get tickets there, uh, and they're already selling a lot of them because we've had a track record here. Uh, we make a lot of money for Children's National, whereas, you know, my son had his open-heart surgeries. And this year's the biggest yet. Uh, so I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to tell some stories behind the scenes, take some questions. And um, it's February 19th, 2022, and it's going to be together in person, which is, um, you know, a fun thing to think about. Yeah, I did it two years ago. It was fantastic. I did the virtual one last year. You, you even pulled that off great. So and it's for a great cause at the Ritz-Carlton Golf Resort in Naples. And uh, I look forward to being there, uh, Brad. Thanks Thank so much you for the invite. doing it. Yeah, I mean, no. you know, you drive this thing. It's really that's the draw is the kill me, you know, panel inclusion. That is really the draw for the tickets. Well, the problem so is I saw that. Jesse. He thinks he's the draw. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what's going on here. Maybe you got to straighten he's him out. First timer. Oh, he's that's... a first timer. We'll, we'll instruct him. <laughs> All right. Yeah, he's the rookie. Uh, thanks, Brad. I'll talk to you soon. All star panel event dot com. You got it. Um, meanwhile, and that's coming up. Uh, that's coming up soon. It's in February. February. Yep. Okay. Go get your tickets now. So to yeah, get it now. It's to, the perfect Christmas present. Right. A weekend in Naples with you, your Fox favorites, and you don't have to worry about the tickets being stuck on a barge. It's you true. can actually come in on Christmas or Hanukkah. Uh, listen, uh, back in a moment. Uh, I look forward to talking to you, and we'll find out if there's indeed more to know. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hillary Clinton could be in her second term as president right now. That is a thought that crosses my mind probably more than it crosses hers. That is something that lives here um, that I think I'm going to take to my grave. When you say take it to your grave, do you mean because you think about something you could have done to help fix the situation, make it better, because you're kind of in that fix-it role? I have reconciled, and it took me a while to reconcile that it was not all my fault. I lived with that. I did. I don't believe that anymore. It's more a sense of uh, an ache in the heart. 
Yeah, because it was her laptop that had all the emails and uh, there were other things that there was done along the way, but she was a key. I don't think anyone's ever blamed her, but if you look at Anthony Weiner's laptop, which the FBI is investigating his, uh, his uh, obscene former husband, her obscene former husband, and then they find all these emails from Hillary Clinton, that reopened the Comey investigation where he said he had no choice, and then that probably was the last-minute thing that just knocked her over the top, but Trump was going to win anyway. Uh, well, just quick announcement before I do the rest of more to know. I'll be on Tucker tonight at 8 o'clock, so talking about the President of Freedom Fighter, which is out tomorrow. You can order and get it delivered. Don't worry about being stuck on a barge. 500,000 copies are stateside, so there'll be enough for you. Uh, and also, I want you to, especially in the New York area, uh, I'm going to be at Publicans on Wednesday night from 6 to 8. Just go register or pre-buy the book at VIP. And then on uh, Thursday, I need you to register to Barnes & Noble in a mall in Staten Island. And then on Friday, uh, I'm over to Georgia, and you'll see it all Saturday, Lexington, Kentucky, and Sunday. Really important. West Virginia, a few seats left where we talk about the, uh, the war on American history and featuring the president of Freedom Fighter. So let's get to uh, find, Let's go find out if there's more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-G-O-L-D. There you go. Matthew McConaughey is weighing in on the gun debate when it comes to movies. He says firearms can be safely used on film sets if protocols are followed. This guy grew up in Texas. He understands it. Alec Baldwin, whose father was the rifle coach at Massapequa High School. I would think Alex knows how to use guns, too. Here he is over the weekend. I can't answer any questions about the investigation. I can't. It's an active investigation in terms of a woman dying. She was my friend. She was my friend. The day I arrived in Santa Fe to start shooting, I took her to dinner with Joel, the director. We were a very, very, excuse me, we were a very, very, you know, well-oiled crew shooting a film together, and then this horrible event happened. Now, I've been told multiple times, don't make any comments about the ongoing investigation. And I can't. He is in shock. He's a nine-year-old son. You know, we are, you know, in constant contact with him because we're very worried about his family and his, his kid. And uh, as I said, we're, we're, we're eagerly awaiting for the sheriff's department to tell us what their investigation has yielded. What else do you have? Would you ever work on another film set that involves uh, firearms of that nature? I couldn't answer that question. I, I, I really don't have any. I have no sense of it at all. I do know that an ongoing effort to limit all right, the use of uh, fire. We heard enough. He's, he's a mess, and I feel bad for him. Uh, there's no winners. Uh, next, Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson are holding hands at Not Scary Farm, but they're just friends. Uh, evidently, they have some mutual celebrity friends. They were out for her outing. You know, Kim's sister, Courtney, and her fiancé, Travis Barker. I had no idea she had a fiancé again. I thought she was still married. Davidson's 27. Oh, uh, Brian, you're so out of date with your Kardashian news. She's right. never been married. It's her first engagement, first marriage. Courtney's never been married? No, this is... Yeah, correct. She was never... Um, what about that guy, the other guy? They never got married. But they had kids. How does that work? How does that work? I, I don't know how they made that happen, Brian. Uh, what do you think? They're real friends? I mean, we don't believe that they're just friends where they was like one... Was she in high heels and it was a, like a... Was, a, was it a... A pot-filled road? Was it a hole-filled road? Like, why would they need to hold hands? Well, they were on a they were on a roller coaster, so they were scared, and she was holding. Mm. They were holding hands. I think if I were in Pete Davidson's team, like they just have to be laughing at all of this. Like it's almost like every week, what super hot woman is Pete Davidson dating? It's unbelievable. Right? That's why he's getting his tattoos off. Next, American Airlines canceling more than two thousand flights. They said it was windy. 
Uh, they said staffing issues, uh, high winds, then people are in the wrong place because they don't have the right flights. We're going on American Airlines to West Virginia, right? And Lexington, Kentucky. Well, I think we're taking American Airlines. We're flying out of West Virginia on American Airlines. So let's hope they have their th- everything together by next weekend. Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah, because then you I mean, have some place to be the next day. Yeah, I mean, we're already doing a connection. Yes. So we have very few options. Um, I would get your private jet on standby. Right. I forgot. <laughs> I don't have one. Sorry. I lied. I told you. Hey, go to BrianKillMe.com. Get the President Freedom Fighter. I'll see you tonight at 8 o'clock with Tucker. Uh, tomorrow I'll be on the 5, and then hopefully be in your town. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.